You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week we're hearing from lead pastor Gare Jones. So we continue in our series in the Gospel of John, looking at encounters with Jesus. As we, as we look at who Jesus is, it's really helpful to work out who someone is by how they relate to other people. And John's Gospel is a story of Jesus relating to people, all sorts of different people. And we're looking at who Jesus is through these encounters he has with different people. A few weeks ago, we looked at John chapter 9, looking at Jesus' Jesus's encounter with a blind man. And if you were here, you remember that this man was blind from birth, and some of the Pharisees were asking, and the disciples were asking, is he, is he blind because he sinned, or did someone sin that means he's blind? And it's really a great question of why suffering, where did suffering come from? And so a few weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus responds to the question, why suffering? And I won't recap that, you can go listen to that if you want to. But straight after that miracle, the Pharisees, who were religious leaders at the time, get into a real argument about what Jesus did. It's quite quite a storm. And Jesus has to enter into it to try to work out what is going on here. And in his interaction with the Pharisees in this argument, we see something else, see something beautiful, see something new about Jesus. So let's look at that together in John chapter 9, and we're going to begin in verse 13, immediately after the miracle. It says this, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. But some of the Pharisees said, this man is no way from God, for he does not even keep the Sabbath. Others asked, but how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. They turned to the blind man again. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. Then the second time they summoned the man who had been blind And they said, give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man's a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I can see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, oh my gosh, I've already told you. And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are the disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, well, this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't do these things. 
To this I replied, you were steeped at sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Which is Jesus' own words for himself. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? We're blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. As we look at this miracle, this account of Jesus and the blind man and the Pharisees, we have to remember why John wrote this in the first place. Later on in John's gospel, at the end of his gospel, he says, look, I wrote all of this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. All of this is to help you see that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Jesus is nothing more than God incarnate. And how John arranged his gospel was to pick episodes in the life of Jesus that symbolized, that taught us more than just what we see on the surface. He actually chose seven miracles and told the story of these seven miracles. And he called them signs, not miracles, because he said in these miracles, we don't just see the power of Jesus, but we have a signpost to something else about him. That these miracles symbolize something else about Jesus. And this miracle symbolizes not just, wow, Jesus loves to heal. And we believe he heals still today. But this miracle is a signpost to something else. And what we see is a signpost to showing us the condition that we all can have of spiritual blindness. That just as this man was physically blind, we can be spiritually blind to the true nature of who Jesus is is. That we can see Jesus, we can experience the miracle, we can hear his teaching, we can ask him questions, and yet we are still blind to who he is. We see this in the Pharisees, right? Time and time again in this amazing passage, they are utterly rejecting who Jesus says he is. They say to this man in verse 16, this man is not from God. No way is this man from God. And again, later on, this blind man just goes, wow, it sounds like you kind of want to be his disciples. And they go, no way. And they hurl insults at him. They're utterly rejecting who Jesus really is, who Jesus claims to be. They are spiritually blind. Now, I've got great sympathy with people who struggle with the claims of Jesus. 
Because on one hand, it's totally understandable. Because if a man is walking around our society and then announces to everybody, hey, guess what? I'm not just a man. I'm also God. Then we are rightly suspicious. We are rightly go, whoa, dude, time out. Follow me. I think you need to see someone. Right? We do have that suspicious. We do have that because an extraordinary claim demands extraordinary evidence. I remember going on something called the Alpha Course, which is a course we run, like a series of dinner evenings where we examine what faith is and particularly look at Jesus. And one of the questions is, who is Jesus? And rightly, there needs to be some strong evidence that he is God. Otherwise, it sounds ridiculous. And so we look into the evidence of, did he actually claim to be God? It's like, well, did he actually claim to be God? Or did we misquote him? Or did people actually change what he said about himself? Is it, well, did he exist? And we look at all these things, and we can look at all the evidence. And I think that's a very helpful and actually honorable task. Jesus never belittled people who were looking for evidence. Faith is never a blind leap of faith. Jesus actually respects our search for truth and respects the truth and helped his disciples with evidence. But that is not what is going on here when Jesus talks about spiritual blindness. It's not the honest inquisition of, dude, I need some evidence for that. It seems to be a condition that not only looks at the evidence, but also in some way brings a predisposition, brings a prejudice to not want it to be true. That there's a blindness that we reject no matter what the evidence says. I, I grew up with me and others and friends saying, look, I don't, I don't know who Jesus is, but I'll tell you what, if he appeared right now, if he appeared to me, if he did a miracle, then I'd believe. Right? That is what the evidence I need. But according to Jesus, not even that will do it. These Pharisees had all the miracles they could want. The Pharisees had Jesus right in front of them. He was doing some incredible things, incredible teaching, incredible claims about himself. And yet they still were blind. Still were blind to who he is. And they rejected him. Spiritual blindness. It's as if none of us can come to the evidence with pure objectivity. None of us can, can come with pure motives to examine the evidence of who Jesus is. It seems like Jesus is saying we all come with actually a predisposition to not wanting it to be true. Thomas Nagel, who is a prominent American philosopher and atheist, wrote a book called The Last Word. And in it, he was looking at the deep questions of life and epistemology and things like this. And he wrote this. He said this, I want atheism to be true. And I am made really uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are believers. 
It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. And he's picking up, ironically, and what Jesus himself diagnoses in this passage and elsewhere, is that we have this tendency, this magnetic pull, this gravitational weight away from there being a God. Jesus defines this condition with a word we know, but it's been abused in its understanding. He describes this condition as sin. Not kind of doing bad things, but the condition that in our hearts we want to be our own God. And we never want to surrender our own authority. That when the Pharisees and when we come to the question, who is Jesus, and he says he is God, we have a natural disposition to go, no. I want to stay in control. This is the pure definition of that first sin, that first rebellion, that first act back in Genesis 1 and 2, where Eve and then Adam listened to the temptation to go, you know what? Who, who says God gets to define what is right and wrong? I think I'm safer if I do it. I want to be in control. I want to have full autonomy. I want to be free to make my own decisions. I want to be free not to do what anyone else says. I don't want anybody to be the boss of me. We have a condition of blindness because the direct claims of Jesus directly oppose our greatest desire. Born out of sin, which is to be our own gods, to be in charge, to have no one else have any claim over our lives. So it was with Adam and Eve, and so it is and has always been through this condition of sin that we see today on beautiful display in our city. What is happening today in our city is this extremely unusual cultural moment where it's almost like the, the desire for autonomy has reached its zenith where everybody is just saying, you know what, we are our own gods and I'm going to throw off anything external that has any pretense to be any sign of authority over my life. Tradition, forget it. Let's cancel it. Any parental structures, forget it. Any legal de definitions of words, forget it. Any kind of societal pressures, forget it. Any stereotypes, forget it. That actually anything that gets in the way of my own self-definition of self, we reject. It's just simply the same as the Pharisees. It's the same as Adam and Eve, that we all have this predisposition that if anything external claims to have authority over our lives, we reject it because the essence of sin is... I want to be my own boss. And that blinds us to even the evidence that might suggest Jesus is right. We fear that it may be right. We're afraid of what it means if Jesus is right. 
We're afraid of what it means for our lives. What it means that there is a God, what does that mean for me? I've got great sympathy with this kind of fear of anything external having authority over my life. My own circumstances may be very different to yours, but my own circumstances growing up, I was raised in an environment where there were many voices claiming to have authority over my life that in the end were suppressing and they were claustrophobic and suffocating who I really was. I was raised in British society, which we think Downton Abbey is finished, but it lives long in the cultural stereotypes of your lot in life. And I was born in a very poor community in the north of England. And there was this historical hangover of and tradition that if you were raised and born in that community, well, you should just know your place and don't aspire to anything else. My father loved dearly. He's now with the Lord. But I remember he came out of abject poverty, had to leave school when he was young to care for his family because his father was an alcoholic gambler. And so my father had this, we got to better ourselves. And he came and had two sons, my brother and I, and he put all this pressure. I love him, but he did put this pressure on us to be something. There was these well-grooved, you need to do this, not waste your life. I don't, and it's like, but dad, no, you're doing this. Dad, no, you're doing summer school. No, you're doing this. I felt this pressure to be something. At times, I didn't want to be. I remember going to school. And the type of school I went to was claustrophobic in expectations. It was kind of, if you want to visualize my school, think of Hogwarts, right? We were all in these oak-filled rooms. We were wearing uniforms, and all the teachers had capes on. And, but they had very well-defined expectations of who we were to be, what careers were beneath us, and what careers were valued. I wanted to be in business. I was this entrepreneur wheeling and dealing in the playground. But no, business was beneath us. I had to go off and be a doctor, be a lawyer, or be a politician. Squeeze into these external structures of who I was supposed to be. I remember even church was not a safe place. I was part of a church for a season where even the pressures of the pastor and the, the pastor's wishes became suffocating. They, it became a situation, really bad situation in the church, where almost your own desires of what you felt and your own following of Jesus was subservient to what the pastor wanted for you, what he felt God was saying to you. And for about four or five years, I was in this environment where even my own desires, I was second-guessing, eventually going, well, you are my authority, you tell me what to do. Toxic. It, there's a word for it, if you've been around church long enough, it is toxic. And there's a word for it, it's called heavy shepherding. Where the pastor is kind of shepherd. And they so, maybe good intentions, don't want you to mess up and make stupid decisions, which I make many. But in order to help us not make those decisions, they become authoritarian and dictate what you should do, dictate where you live, dictate what job you take, dictate and say it's all 
the will of God. So by the time I'm 25, I'm running from external authority. You have your own stories. I can't imagine if I was born into a climate of extreme racism or stereotypes, all these types of things, where all these pressures are there to be something that doesn't reflect who God made you to be. And by the time I was 25, I was running. Running from stereotypes, running from parent expectations, and particularly running from churches and pastors who just wanted to control. So I had to decide, is Jesus part of this toxic controlling? Is Jesus also part of this suppression of joy and freedom? Is Jesus also part of this toxic web that I can't trust any external authority? Is joy and freedom truly shaking off every external voice? I remember as I was navigating this question, a friend of mine invited me to church to actually go to something called Alpha, which if you've been around here a while, you know I love. It's just a safe, non-judgmental evening series of them where people who are nervous, cautious, questioning, skeptics can come and explore faith without judgment. And I was petrified about going to church because church for me was that cultish, take away my own voice. But he said there's some cute girls there, so I went along. <laughs> and so I went and to investigate, is there a God? Is God part of this toxic external authority that will actually suppress joy in life? And it was a fun environment. There was lots of people like me there questioning life and spirituality. But about week four, the speaker, because every evening there's someone who talks for about 20 minutes, just something about faith. The speaker said something which kind of caused the light bulb to go on. Took away my spiritual blindness about who Jesus was. Told this story about his own life. He said this, in the context of, is putting yourself first, is denying all external authority, is being your own God truly the way to freedom, truly the way to joy and meaning? And he said this, some years ago, when my eldest son was eight years of age, he used to play soccer on Clapham Common, which is a park just south of London. Andy Busk was their coach, and he was also the referee of all the games. And one day I went along, but Andy Busk hadn't turned up. So all the kids kind of press-ganged me into being the referee. Now, I had a number of difficulties with this. First of all, at that time on Clapham Common, there were no soccer pitches laid out. There was no markings for where the goals were or where the lines were. So I just put a couple of sweaters down for the goals. The other thing was I didn't have a whistle. And then the boys didn't have different colors. They all were just wearing their ordinary clothes. And then, crucially, I didn't know the rules. Nor did I know their names. I knew my son's name, but I didn't know the other boys' names. And so the match began, 
And one boy shouted, the ball's out. Another boy shouted, that's not out. I didn't know. And I'm kind of a non-confrontational person anyway. So I just said, play on. And then someone fouled. And someone said, hey, that's not a foul. And someone said, that is a foul. I didn't know whether it was a foul or not. So I just said, play on. It wasn't long before, literally after a while, there were three or four small boys lying in agony on the ground. The place looked like a battlefield. And eventually, to my immense relief, I saw Andy Busk arriving on his bicycle. Andy Busk had his whistle. He knew the boys' names. He put them into teams. And every time there was a foul or the ball went out, he blew the whistle. He stopped the game and he imposed the rules. Now, were the boys more free when I was refereeing and they could do what they want and there was total chaos? Or were they more free when there was someone in charge and there was a definite set of rules? And within that set of rules, they were free to enjoy the game. And it was at that point, the beginning of the light bulb in my head went on. That living my life, my own way, my own rules, had, yes, been free of the toxic external pressures, but after a few years I could see this wasn't much better. That actually I looked around the world and thought, Living as our own gods. It does look like a battlefield. We're crying, don't tell me what to do, I'll be my own person. And yet, there's total chaos. And no one is truly finding the joy they thought they would find. Could it be? Could it be? That God, because he loves us, looks at the chaos, looks at our rebellion to be our own gods, but out of his love sees us lying on the fields in a battleground. And like Andy Busk, he came on his bicycle to Bethlehem, not to squash our freedom, but to actually help us live into it. To actually help us find the ways of life, the ways of meaning, the ways of joy, the ways of identity, the ways that actually help us play this game of life together with joy. Could it be that there's a God who so loves us that he's come to help us? And I started to examine Jesus. Is this what he said he would do? And as I read about Jesus, I didn't see any of the toxic external abuse I'd suffered. But I read things like, I have come that you might have life and have life to the full. 
And the light went on. That autonomy. Seeing ourselves as our own gods isn't the way to life. It's the way of Jesus. John Mark Comer, who is a friend of ours, who's a pastor up in Portland, said this. He said, the teachings of Jesus aren't just the right way to live. They're not just an arbitrary set of rules Jesus gives us, but they are the best way to live. And as a disciple of Jesus, all of Jesus' teachings, sex, marriage, love, divorce, fidelity, nonviolence, anxiety, generosity, forgiveness, money, everything, are not just arbitrary, but they are the best way to be human in the world. Jesus is the best living example of a thriving, flourishing human being. His teachings are the map to what he called the life that is truly life. Jesus, the author of life, the creator of life, has come like Andy Busk to help us experience the fullness of life. This is not some external authority to suppress life but to cultivate it. The problem is, until we see our own limitations, until we see that being our own gods isn't working out, we are blind to who Jesus is. That's why in this story, it's the blind man, born from birth, who realizes, dude, on my own, I'm not going to make it. And he believed and worshipped him. It's why the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders at the time, still believed that, you know what? We can do this. They still believe we've got this. We still believe that being our own gods is going to be the best way. And so when Jesus comes and says, guys, I am actually the author of life, they go, And reject him. It's why Jesus at the very end says this in verse 41, quite difficult sentence. He says, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now you are, but now you claim you can see, your guilt remains. He's saying, You claim you can see, and what you see is that within your own strength, within your own definition of right and wrong, within your own definition of life, with you as God, you're going to make it. But you remain blind. It takes us coming to the end of ourselves for us to finally look at Jesus without the blinkers. Maybe he is who we need. Maybe he is the author of life. And maybe he is worth surrendering control to. Until we come to the end of ourselves, we remain blind. I remember growing up in England in a fairly poor area, and I would play soccer, but golf, this thing called golf, was not on our radar, right? It was rich people. I never really heard of much of golf. It was just like, ooh, don't really know. It was kind of like golf was in the same category as horse polo. Just like, who? I have no idea. So golf was never part of my world. And then I remember going to London. I was working in a law firm in the city of London. I was good with clients, and... The partner at the law firm came in and said, yeah, 
We'd love you to come on a client trip. We're going down to the south of France uh, in a couple of weeks. We've got, for the whole weekend, we've got this beautiful villa, and we've got some banking clients, and you come along, and a couple of other people. It's an amazing trip. Beautiful villa. We're eating every night at uh, Michelin-star restaurants. It's going to be stunning. Would you, we'd love you to come. I go, I'm in. And then as he was leaving the door, leaving the room, he said, oh, I forgot, I forgot, I forgot, I forgot. It's actually a golfing weekend, um, and you're a good golfer, right? And I go, absolutely. Because <laughs> that's what I thought. And so, and so I panicked then, thinking I'm going, I'm not going to miss this trip, but I need to learn to play golf. And so two weeks, I went the next weekend to visit my parents because uh, I knew down the road from where they lived was a golf course. Never been to a golf course in my life. There was just literally a signpost next to my mum's house saying golf course. So I thought, okay, here we go. I went to the ATM, got out 500 pounds in cash, which was about $800. And I went into the golf shop and uh, put the cash down on the desk and said... Um, I'd love someone to teach me to play golf today, please. And they went, what? He said, oh, I'm in a tournament next week, and I've never played before, and I need you to teach me to play golf today. At which point, they looked with disgust that I would dishonor the game of golf like this. Um, but then they saw the money, and their disgust went away. And so for that two days, actually, for two days, nonstop, they taught me to play golf. And, but they began with this. They began with this. They said, um, we'll teach you to play golf, but here's the rule. You do everything we say. I go, no problem. They said, show me, they said, show me your natural swing. So, you know, <laughs> it was something like that. And they went, great. Just so, just so you know, you bring nothing to the table right now. You have to trust us that we know what we're doing. I go, I trust you. And then for the next two days, I did everything this golf pro told me to do. That I would enjoy the game of golf. Not once did I come and say, hang on a minute, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> not once did I say, hang on a minute, who says you can tell me what to do? Not once did I say, hang on, let's do this together. Let me bring some suggestions to the table and I'll follow some of yours. Not once did I even say to him, okay, I'll take your advice under consideration and if I agree with it, then I'll do it. To actually enter into the freedom, the joy of going to the south of France and not making a fool of myself, actually I had to step under his authority fully and say, you know what, you are the author of this game. I don't bring much to the table. In fact, what I bring doesn't work. I need you to teach me. Because I actually voluntarily submit my control to yours. This is the essence of what it means to see Jesus for who he truly is. Someone who says, in this game of life, calling your own shots, deciding what is right and wrong for yourself, rejecting all my authority will not go well with you.
it'll hurt others, it'll hurt you. And until you realize that, you'll remain blind. And he's patient with us, he's loving with us. And it says in the Bible, he keeps knocking on the door till eventually, like the blind man, we go, I surrender. You are the author of life. I give you control. Because I believe I was meant to live under your loving, gracious rule. And there's one thing history has shown us. Doing it as our own gods ain't working. You may be here today going, yeah, I have absolutely, I've seen that. I came to the end of myself. I want to encourage you. There's more to see. And maybe there's some areas of your life still you're holding on to. Do you trust him to be in control? Maybe it's, yeah, I'm not too sure. I still want to investigate what Jesus said. I'm not too sure. And I really respect and value that. I would say, come on, Alpha, in the fall, in September. And I'd also maybe go away and say, Jesus, i got to admit, I don't come with pure objectivity to this question because I don't want to give up control. So maybe at least recognize your own prejudice. And maybe, since Jesus isn't a philosophy but a person, you can pray, help me. Help me see. Because I don't want to be blind if this is the truth. And there may be some today who will like me back on that Alpha course where you go, you know what? I see. It's time. I've tried to live my own way. And maybe for good reason I've had to really come out of abusive, toxic, external authority and I, re- I empathize with you for that. And maybe you've struggled then thinking a God would love you, a God is benevolent, a God actually has the best for you, but you're actually starting to think as you look at Jesus, I can trust him. And I want the life that he has for me. I want the marriage that he has for me. I want the purpose he has for me. I want the singleness he has for me. I want the joy he has for me. I want to taste this thing that he called life and life in abundance. I want to step out from being my own God and coming under his loving rule. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.